Okay, well, good afternoon, everyone. I think it's time for us to get started here, and welcome. We're glad you're here. And um, today we're going to be talking a little bit about preaching for decisions, and it's going to be very practical as we get into it here in just a minute. And it's how do you uh, prepare a sermon, um, and how do you, uh, where, do, where do you get your ideas from, and how do you build that? So that's kind of going to be our focus here for a little bit this afternoon. All of you are able to see the uh, PowerPoint okay? Let me move myself over here and make sure you can see it. Okay, well, just before we get going, let me tell you a little bit about myself, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and, and we'll get right to it. How many of you have heard of Amazing Facts? You've all heard of Amazing Facts? How about AFCO? You know what AFCO is? The Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism. It's a four-month training program that we have over there in California. We just started about uh, four weeks ago. Um, I'm the director of AFCO and the evangelism program for Amazing Facts. I've been with Amazing Facts since 2005. Um, I'm also pastoring a church that we started about four and a half years ago in the suburbs of Sacramento. So we kept pretty busy with everything going on, but just delighted to be here. Uh, originally, I'm from South Africa, so if you pick up a little bit of an accent, that's what it is. I like to tell people I'm from the South, way South. <laughs> but I've been here for a while, um, since about 2000 and uh, no, it was 92, I think I came. So it's been a little while that we've been here. Anyway, let's just bow heads and we'll stop with a word of prayer. Father, once again, we thank you that we're able to be here. We thank you for this opportunity to talk about how we can effectively and meaningfully prepare sermons that we can share that will lift up Jesus and will draw people closer to you. So we pray for your presence and pray for guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so you go back from this seminar, and uh, the pastor comes to you and says, you know what, uh, we got the special youth emphasis coming up, and we would like you to uh, preach for that seminar, or the sermon, I want you to do the sermon coming up. And so you think, okay, well, that's great. Uh, where do you start? What, what do you do? Uh, how do you actually put something together? How many of you preach on a regular basis? Okay, how many of you have preached before at some point? Okay, just about everyone, all right. So uh, you're going to have to prepare a sermon. Uh, where do you start with that? What I'd like to do in this presentation is we'll keep it real practical. I want to talk basically about two types of sermons. Now, there's many, but I'm going to just zone in on two simple types of sermons and how you go about preparing these sermons, putting them together. So what I've done is this is a sermon. These are actually my sermon notes, a sermon that I preached sometime back called Because Jesus is Coming. And it's a, it's a fairly simple outline but I wanted to point out a few things. Obviously, you've got your introduction. I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then you've got your three main points. The sermon is because Jesus is coming. My first point was because Jesus is coming, we must endure. Because Jesus is coming, we have hope. And because Jesus is coming, the best is yet to come. You've got your introduction. You've got your three main points that you want to bring out. And then your conclusion. Now, what I typically do if I do this type of a sermon, which is more topical-based, I will come up with what my general theme is, what am I going to be preaching on, and then I ask myself a few questions about that. I ask, what does this topic mean to me? How would it affect me? And the topic is because Jesus is coming. So I spent some time in prayer, and I asked the question, what does that mean, that Jesus is coming? What does that do for me? And from that time in prayer and asking those kind of questions, you come up with your main points. For me, because Jesus is coming, we need to endure. Because Jesus is coming, we have hope. Because Jesus is coming, the best is yet to come. Once you've got your three main points together, uh, then you begin working on what your introduction is going to be. I like to write out my introduction uh, because I want to make sure that I say it right just to get started on the sermon. And I usually spend a little more time on the conclusion. Now, again, this is just a simple format to put a sermon together so you can preach it. In this case, this is what I said for the introduction. Because Jesus is coming... For three and a half years, the disciples had been with Jesus. They had come to know him and love him. They believed him to be the promised Messiah, the son of the living God. So when Jesus told them that he was to leave them and return to his father in heaven, their hearts were filled with sadness. When Jesus saw the sadness on their faces, he said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. Then I quote John 14, 1 to 3. Friends, we're Adventists. We believe that Jesus is coming again. We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. Now, I will go through this until I know it. I don't read the introduction. I will just speak the introduction. I'll just tell the folks the introduction. And I'll build it up to try and emphasize this general theme because Jesus is coming again. 
we have a hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming of the Lord. Then I'll say something like, because Jesus is coming, then I'll bring in my first point. In this case, because Jesus is coming, we must endure. Now, with this type of sermon, it's very structured and it's simple. I will make a point, then I'll bring up a passage from Scripture to strengthen that point, then I will give a Bible story to illustrate that point, and then I'll give a general illustration. And then I move to the next point. And the next point, I'll have a Bible verse to emphasize that point. I'll have a Bible story, and then I'll have another illustration. And then I move to the next point. Do you see the simple format that you follow? So I use the same structure whenever I do this type of a sermon. I'll even use these same notes. I'll just change this <laughs> from because Jesus is coming, we must endure. I'll change it to whatever the topic is. I'll change the verse, the Bible story, and the illustration, but I even leave these subtitles here to kind of guide me all my way through. So it's a simple way of doing it. Also, uh, just one other thing about the structure of the sermon, I always use this type of a format where you have um, two columns. And in some cases, some of the sermons might be more than one page, and so I'll have two pages. But I use the same format, so when it comes to preaching the sermon, let's say the sermon is this, and I have one column here and another column there, I'll fold that over like that, and then I will put it in the inside cover of my Bible. Now what I'll do is I'll get double-sided tape. You see what my Bible looks like? <laughs> I get double-sided tape and I stick it on the page there and I'll stick it to the cover of my Bible. So it's always in the Bible. So my notes will be right there. They won't ever fall out. And if I have more than one page for my notes, the second page I will fold and stick on here. So you kind of have a little book on your inside cover. You turn over here, it is, and you can, you can put as many pages as you want. But that way you keep everything in one place and it's right there on the Bible or in the Bible. All right, so we make our three points. And the first point in this case is because Jesus is coming, we need to endure. And then I'll tell the story about Daniel, or rather Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the emphasis there, how that they endured, they stood firm, they trusted in God. Likewise, we also need to endure. So I spend quite a bit of time in preparing, in going through that passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 3. I go through it several times to make sure that it's, it's very real to me. I try to imagine the scene as best I can, at least in my mind's eye. And then I tell the story. Tell the story as meaningfully and as um, passionately as you can. Describe the scene. Make it come alive when you tell the story. So you, you give the Bible story to illustrate the point, and then you go into um, some other illustration. Now, you can get illustrations from various sources. Um, personal story is always good, and I use several of these personal stories in this. Uh, I just put down the story so that I'll remember what it is. In this case, it's something called the Comrades Marathon. It's an interesting story. In South Africa, there is a race from two cities, and um, it's an endurance race. So the idea is if you can finish this race in eight hours, you get a medal of participation. And they have a big clock that counts down to you know, when the eight hours are up. And they always finish this race in a stadium. And the stadium is filled with people, and the cameras are there. And uh, they usually show this live. As the clock is counting down, when it's got maybe a half an hour or so to go, they'll show it live as all the people come running into the stadium and they want to get across that finish line before the, the eight-hour mark is up. Uh, on one occasion, I was, I was still a, a boy, and I remember watching the Comrades Marathon uh, on television. The clock was counting down, and uh, there was just a few minutes left on the clock when a woman came running into the stadium. And the way, in order to get to the finish line, you had to run all the way around and then cross the line. And so she had to kind of make her way all around the stadium and come around. And she was doing just fine. But as she started getting closer to the finish line, her legs started cramping up. And she fell down to the ground. And of course, the cameras zoom in on her, and she's lying on the ground. And, uh, you know, she tries to get up. And she makes a, takes a few steps. And then she falls down again. And she tries to get up, and then she kind of just gives up. And somebody in the crowd calls through and says to her, you're almost there, don't give up, just crawl. 
And so she gets onto her hands and her knees and she starts crawling towards the finish line. And the people begin cheering her on. And some of the other people kind of gathering around her and they get down on their hands and their knees and they start crawling along with her, trying to encourage her, you're, you're almost there. And finally, just in the nick of time, she crossed that finish line. Of course, everybody just went wild. I mean, the stadium, you should have been there. It's incredible. They lifted her up and started carrying her around as if she had won the gold medal. She had made it just in the nick of time. And then when I tell that story, I will say, you know, it's as if we can almost hear the angels saying to us, you're almost there. Don't give up. Press on. Because Jesus is coming, we must endure. So I'll tell my Bible story, and then I'll illustrate it with that kind of a story. And after I've made the point, then I go on to the second point. And in this case, because Jesus is coming, we have hope. And the verse that I look at is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven and so on. I read the verse, and then I tell my Bible story. And in this case, it's the story of Lazarus, uh, how that... Um, Jesus came and resurrected Lazarus, and I go into the details and describe everything and so on. And then again, I tell another illustration, and this one was the story of my grandfather, and um, it's quite an interesting story, but I'm not going into that now. Then my third point on this sermon was because Jesus is coming, the best is yet to come, and then 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. So then I'll finish up by talking about Abraham, how he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, and then I will tell my closing illustration connected with this point. And in this case, it was the story of President Roosevelt, who was on a hunting expedition in Africa, and he came back home, and he was on a ship, and on the ship there was a missionary who had dedicated his whole life to mission work over in Africa, and he was coming home. His family had died in Africa, and he was alone, and he's finally coming back. And he happened to be on the same ship that Roosevelt was on. And so finally, when the ship made its way into New York, everybody in the city had come out to welcome the president. And the band was playing, and everyone was waving flags and all the rest of it. And the old missionary stood, and he watched this happen. And then finally, when the president left the boat, and all the people kind of moved their way away, he picked up his bag. No one was there to meet him. He went ashore and found a little... Uh, cheap place to stay. And that night, just before he got into bed, as he always did, he knelt down and he prayed and he said, Lord, I don't want to complain or anything, but you know, I've dedicated my whole life to your service. And uh, I've buried my family over in Africa. And uh, I come home and there's nobody there to welcome me. Not just, not one person. He says, Lord, it just doesn't seem fair. But then the Holy Spirit impressed him and said, but my son, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. Wait for the welcome when you get home. And so I'll tell that story to illustrate the point that because Jesus is coming, the best is yet to come. We're, we're not home yet. we still got a little more to do. So I'll use that simple format, and it can be very powerful if you put time into it and you work on it and you illustrate these different points. And then kind of for the conclusion, I did something I first day in heaven. And I asked the congregation, I said, can you imagine your first day in heaven? What will it be like? Walking on those streets of gold, singing with the angel choir. Uh, just imagine your first day in heaven, and it's overwhelming. And uh, you can't believe you're actually there. And you think to yourself, I need to just be by myself for a little while to try and absorb the glory of the scene. And you look off in the distance, and you see the Garden of Eden, and you make your way in there. Beautiful garden, lush green grass, brightly colored flowers, and you're standing by a crystal clear pool of water and you're looking down and see this brightly colored fish swimming around and you hear the, the singing in the distance and you just can't believe it. It's like a dream. But then suddenly you feel a hand on your shoulder and you turn and it's Jesus. And Jesus says to you, my son, my daughter, welcome home. I'm so glad you came. Yes, because Jesus is coming, we must endure. Because Jesus is coming, we have hope. Because Jesus is coming, the best is yet to come. So I'll illustrate the point that way. And then I finish up with a little poem. There's a man in yonder glory I've loved for many years. He has cleared my guilty conscience and banished all my fears. He's coming in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. When the dead in Christ arise to the world, I will say goodbye. Are you ready, Christian, ready for the shout, the trump, the voice? Will his coming make you tremble or cause you to rejoice? Are you daily walking with him, taking to him all your cares? Are you living so close to heaven 
that when he comes, he will take you there. And then I'd finish up with Revelation 21, 1 to 3. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more pain. There won't be any more sorrow, crying. There won't be any more pain, no more death, for the former things are passed away. That would be my conclusion to the sermon. So, basically in that format that we have, we have our introduction. We have point number one, two, three, and then we finish up with our conclusion. We ask the question, what does this theme mean to me personally? Give that some time and prayer and thought. Come up with your three points, and then you find a scripture verse to kind of build on that point, a Bible story, and then some kind of an illustration to make the point, and then you move on. This is probably one of the simplest ways to prepare a sermon. So somebody comes to you and they say, oh, we need you to speak tomorrow or you know, Thursday, and, and you only have a day or two to put something together, but you kind of got an idea of what you want to work on. This is a, a simple format that can be followed in preparing sermons. Any questions on, on this topical style of sermon prep? Does it make sense? You see the way it works. It can be very powerful depending upon how much time you put into your different points. Now, one other thing I want to say about this. Um, you can put your sermon outline together, but it's also very important that you, that you go through the sermon several times before you actually preach it. Uh, when I was pastoring a church in the Midwest, uh, Friday mornings would be my sermon preaching time. And I'd actually go over to the church and I would stand behind the pulpit and there would be no one in the building, but I would preach my heart out. I'd preach away. And that gives me an opportunity to really go through these stories and try and make it as real as I possibly can. And I remember on one occasion, <laughs> one of the church members happened to be at the church while I was busy practicing and preaching my sermon to nobody. And uh, I didn't know this person was there, but he was standing at the back, you know, just kind of listening. And afterwards, he came and said, wow, Pastor, you need to preach like that on Sabbath. <laughs> you really get into it. <laughs> so practice is important. Go through your sermons, especially if you're going to be sharing Bible stories. Make them alive. Make them real. Let the people grasp it with their imagination. When you're telling some sort of an illustration, a personal story, go through it so it's real to you and you can share it with others. It'll make it even more powerful and relevant for their life. So that's one form of preaching sermons. There's another one that I want to talk about, and I'll go into this one maybe in a little more detail. And this is more a, a taking a passage of Scripture and then kind of breaking it apart, opening it up and building it. So in this case, you don't have an outline with reference to these are the points I want to bring out in my sermon. In this case, you let the passage of Scripture serve as your outline. So you kind of go wherever the Apostle Paul is going, or you go wherever John is going in a particular passage. This is the type of preaching that I do now more than any other. It takes quite a bit of time to put this kind of a sermon together, but it's extremely rewarding. Um, currently, I'm busy preaching on the book of Revelation. So we're going verse by verse through the whole book of Revelation a couple of weeks ago, we preached on Revelation 14, 1 to 5. So in doing this type of preaching, this is the way it would go. I would put the verse up on the screen, as you see it here, and I would read it. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And then when I, when I have the verse, and I'm talking about how it prepared the sermon, then I start taking it piece by piece. The first is, then I looked, and behold. So I do a little bit of research on this. John's attention is drawn away from the beasts of Revelation 13 to those who have gotten victory over these beasts and over these powers. So I'll find a passage or a thought in that verse, and I'll do some research on that particular thought. You can go to SDA Bible Commentaries, Spirit of Prophecy writings. You can go to a variety of sources to, to get these key ideas. And then I'll also cross-reference it with different verses, talking about... This group, they had gotten victory over the beast, so all who dwell upon the earth will worship him, except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image. So here's a group of people described in Revelation chapter 14, 1, who have gotten the victory over the beast. Then it goes on and says, they're standing with the Lamb. So I do a little bit of research upon the Lamb. Obviously, the Lamb is a reference to Jesus, according to Re Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. But I began to do a little research to find out where are lambs mentioned in Scripture. And this is kind of interesting. 
The first mention of lambs in Scripture occurs in Genesis chapter 21. Now, you read about sheep and other things, but the first mention of a lamb, Genesis 21, 28 to 31, where Abraham, is, is, where Abraham in order to attest the ownership of the well of Beersheba, which means the, o, the well of the oath, is recorded as giving seven lambs to Abimelech. The second mention of lambs is Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Now, what's interesting about this is there was this controversy over this well which Abraham's servants had dug, but Abimelech's servants claimed that it was their well. So this is a well that really belongs to Abraham, but then in order to prove to Abimelech that this well really is Abraham's, he gives these seven lambs as sort of this covenant. If you really think about it, we belong to God. But Satan has kidnapped this earth. Jesus then buys us back, and he's the lamb that dies for our sins. The second reference to lambs, which is interested, in Genesis 22, 7 and 8, and that's when the sanctuary was prescribed at Mount Sinai. God ordered that a lamb be offered for a burnt offering every morning and every evening, symbolizing the continual ministry of Jesus on behalf of sinners. So when I'm doing this kind of a sermon, I'll, it takes a lot of work, but you'll take a thought and then just kind of build on that and get your cross-references going. Uh, for example, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, points to Jesus and says that the Lamb of God it takes away the sins of the world. And then in 1 Peter 1.18, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed, that is bought back with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions of fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The next part of the verse says, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, if you do a little research with the word standing, it means to stand, remain, endure, persist, be established, be in a standing attitude to hold one's ground. It's not a passive just standing, but it's an active resisting. So those who have stood against the beast and against his image described in Revelation 13, now they describe victorious standing with Jesus. Jesus stood against the forces of darkness and overcome, overcame. Now the redeemed are described as standing with Jesus, sharing that same determination to be faithful no matter what. Mount Zion, uh, the name literally means signpost. Originally, Zion was a hill on which was situated the old Jebusite fortress, which David conquered and renamed the city of David, or Jerusalem. When the ark was transferred to Jerusalem, Zion became known as the dwelling place of God. In New Testament times, Mount Zion symbolizes the New Jerusalem. So here are those who have overcome, and they're standing with Jesus in the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion. With them, 144,000, that is to stand with Jesus. John now sees a group of people who have stood with Christ against the beast in his image. Now they are seen sharing in Christ's victory. Of course, Revelation 21 also says, He who overcomes will inherit all things. And then it talks about the 144,000. And in this case, I kind of looked at a couple of things with reference to the 144,000. The 144,000 are those who are able to stand through the events portrayed in Revelation chapter 6, 12 through 17, which is the second coming of Christ? Is the great earthquake and the people turn to the rocks and the mountains and they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? So the question is asked, who's going to be able to stand when Jesus comes? The answer to the question is given in Revelation chapter 7, 1 to 4. Those who have the seal of God upon their foreheads. And then it goes to describe them. 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. You've got 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000. So these are the ones that have the seal of the living God, and they are protected in the time of universal destruction, as were those who possessed the mark in Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel chapter 9, 1 through 6. Now, something else significant about the 144,000 that I think is interesting, 12 is a significant number in the Bible because of the 12 tribes of Israel, and you've got the 12 apostles in the New Testament era. There is great significance to the order in which John lists the tribes in Revelation 7. Uh, each tribe has a specific meaning, and when linked together, we find a description of the experience of God's people that God's people will go through before the second coming of Christ. Now, the order in which John lists the tribes over here in Revelation 7 is unique. You won't find it listed this way anywhere else. Uh, here's the way it's listed. The tribe of Dan is also missing in this list. And Joseph is added as well, of his, as well as his sons to make up 12. But you have Judah, which means I will praise the Lord. Reuben, he has looked on me, Gad, and given good fortune. Asher, happy am I. Nephtalim, for my wrestling. 
Manassas, God is making me forget. Simeon, God hears me. Levi, and is joined to me. Issachar, he has purchased me. Zebulun, a dwelling. Joseph, God shall add to me. Benjamin, the son of his right hand. So if you just read the meaning of the names, I will praise the Lord. He has looked on me and given good fortune. Happy am I for my wrestling. God is making me forget. God hears me and is, and is joined to me. He has purchased me a dwelling. God shall add to me the son of his right hand. That's really a description of the experience of those who are on the earth when Jesus comes. Those who are alive, that's the experience that they go through. So that's the significance of the order of the tribes that you find listed in Revelation chapter 7. So that's kind of the format that I use in this type of preaching. And I just take it verse by verse, a little bit here, a little bit there. It takes a lot of time to dig and research and build it as you go through. They have the Father's name written in their foreheads. Name is often synonymous with character. So in Revelation 3, 7 verse 3, the 144,000 are sealed in their foreheads. There is a close connection between the seal of God and the Father's name. Applied to the 144,000, the seal and name of God represents one ownership. The 144,000 belong to God and to character. The 144,000 fully reflect the image of God. So I emphasize these things as we're going through the study. Now, of course, one of the things people often ask is, well, is this a literal number, the 144,000, or is it a figurative number? Have you ever wondered that before? Is it literal or is it figurative? What is it? <laughs> Here's my answer to it. We shall know soon enough. <laughs> We've been counseled not to get into arguments about uh, who makes up the 144,000. We've been counseled that we ought to strive to be amongst the 144,000, and we shall know soon enough. Uh, the key point that we want to emphasize in this is that God will have a people that'll stand faithful to him at the end of time. The question is, are we going to be amongst them? You know, are we going to allow him to place his seal upon us and in us so that our character reflects his character? It says that this is written in their foreheads. The decision-making powers of the mind are in the foreheads. To have the Father's name written on the foreheads is to have his commandments within the heart and mind by the Holy Spirit. It is to have a fixed inclination in accordance with all of the known will of God this is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise that we read about in Hebrews chapter 10. Okay, I'm going to just share a couple more points here just to kind of make sure you get the idea of how we do this. Verse 2, And I heard a loud voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. So now we hear this. John describes what he hears 38 times in Revelation and what he sees 78 times. Revelation is an eye and ear report of what John saw and heard in vision. It's kind of an interesting point. In Revelation chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So in this verse, we see that God the Father is the fountainhead of all truth. This truth then is received by Jesus. Jesus then sends this truth by an angel in this case, to John, and John writes down everything that he hears, everything that he sees, that which the Spirit of God, which of course is the testimony of Jesus, the Spirit of prophecy, that which the Spirit of God reveals to him, he just faithfully writes it all down. So we have an eyewitness account in the writing of Revelation. It's this message that comes from the Father through Christ by an angel to John. John writes it down, and we read it today. So it's directly from God. That's the source. And uh, he, hears, he, he hears a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, the sound of many waters. Jesus has the voice of many waters in Revelation 1 verse 5. And also the voice of loud thunder. Uh, thunder is often connected with the presence of God in Revelation 4 verse 5. And I heard harpists playing the harp. John now hears the 144,000 playing on their harps in heaven. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. So here is this new song. This new song is the song of Moses and the Lamb. We read that in Revelation 15, 2 and 3, which will be sung by the 144,000 who have stood with Jesus and who have gained the victory. Now, why is this the song of Moses and the Lamb? Well, when was the song of Moses sung? 
That was when? After the Red Sea, right? Yeah, when Pharaoh's armies were consumed in the waters. And where or what would you think would categorize the Song of the Lamb? Do you know of Jesus singing anything, at least in his earthly life, that we have a record of? Well, it's not so much something that Jesus sang, but what was sort of the climax of Christ's experience here on this earth? Calvary. What happened just before Calvary in the garden? What did Jesus do in the garden of Gethsemane? He prayed. What was his prayer? What was Christ's prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? Not my will be done, thy will be done. So the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, Moses leading the children of Israel standing by the Red Sea. Pharaoh and the armies are coming behind. They can't go to the right, they can't go to the left. The water's before them. They are completely dependent upon God. If God does not deliver them, they lost. And in the last moment, God opens up the Red Sea, provides a way of escape for the children of Israel, and in the process destroys their enemy. So likewise, those at the end of time, they will be surrounded by uh, the enemy of God and his people. There will be a death decree that will be passed. They will be like the children of Israel standing by the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. They have to depend fully upon God. And just like God opened up the Red Sea to provide a, a way of escape for the children of Israel, Jesus will open up the sky and provide a way of escape for his people at the second coming. And in the same way that Pharaoh's armies were destroyed when God brought deliverance to the Israelites, so the enemy of God's people are destroyed when Jesus delivers his people. They're destroyed with the brightness of Christ's coming. Their experience is the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he said, Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. A full and complete surrender to the will of God. Whatever your will is, Lord, that's what I want. That's what we will do. That's why the 144,000 are described as singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. It's a unique experience. Only they're the ones that sing the song. It's a unique experience because it describes what they went through just prior to the second coming of Jesus. And of course, they're before the throne. The throne has earlier been introduced as the throne of God in Revelation 4.2. This new song is sung by the 144,000 in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the Father. Now, this is an amazing verse. Zephaniah, we don't go to this very often, but in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, this is what it says. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Holy One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, this is referring to God the Father. It's also referring to Christ. But here I can just imagine the scene in heaven we're standing before God's throne. We're standing on the sea of glass. And Jesus is leading us into the presence of his Father. And we're all there. And Jesus says, here are those that you have given me. And the Father looks upon us, his children. And there is a moment of silence. The whole universe is watching. And then suddenly the Father stands from his throne. And he begins to sing for joy over you and I. He sings for joy. Can you just imagine that experience where God the Father is singing because he's so happy that you and I are there, that we're saved, that we're home. That's the love of the Father that he has for us where he's actually singing for joy at the redeemed. That's brought out here in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Then it talks about the four living creatures. Now, this is the description of the heavenly throne room that we have in Revelation 4, 6, and 7. Each beast symbolizes a phase of Christ's ministry for us. You've heard about the four living creatures, the angels surrounding his throne, six wings. You have a description in Ezekiel as well. Isaiah describes them too. Uh, here's the description given in Revelation 4, 6, and 7. Before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne, around about the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in the front and in the back. The first was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature was like the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. What do you think the significance of these, uh, this, this, these descriptions are? 
the first living creature is like a lion. What does a lion represent in Scripture? What does a lion represent? At least in our society today, a lion would be referred to as the king of the beast. Symbolizes royalty. Symbolizes kingship. Or what would a calf represent? Or an ox? It's a beast of burden, right? In Bible times, it was a sacrificial animal. And then the face of a man. We'll come back to that. What do you think an eagle might refer to in the Bible? What might an, might an eagle symbolize? An eagle symbolizes judgment. Uh, God in the Old Testament described as coming upon, the e coming upon the wicked as an eagle. Symbol of judgment. Also symbol of speed, but judgment is connected with that. Now if you look at the descriptions given, a lion, a calf, a man, we'll come to that in a minute, and an eagle, these four living creatures, this describes four phases in the ministry for man's salvation. It's really symbols of Jesus in one way or another. Uh, the lion can represent Christ before his incarnation, his high position as royalty, as king. The calf would represent Christ when he was on the earth as a beast of burden. He came to bear our sins and to die in our place as a sacrifice. The man would represent Christ's high priestly ministry on our behalf in heaven. Jesus is our high priest, but he's also our older brother. He intercedes for us. The eagle can represent Christ coming as King of kings and Lord of lords to execute judgment upon the wicked and to deliver his people. So in the four living creatures, we can also catch a glimpse of different roles that Jesus has in our salvation, in the plan of redemption. Now, the four living creatures also resemble the layout of the camp of Israel in the wilderness. Uh, each of the four leading tribes, Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, Ephraim, and Dan, had an emblem which they placed facing towards the tabernacle. The emblem of the tribe of Judah was a lion, of Reuben a calf, of Ephraim a man, and of Dan an eagle. Now, this is very interesting. You can read about it over here in Numbers. It says, on the east side, towards the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces of Judah. This is how they were to pitch camp. So they had the temple in the, in the middle, the sanctuary in the middle, and then there would be three tribes on either side. Now, according to the picture, these tents are right up against the sanctuary, but they had to be a space all around the sanctuary, an open area. Three tribes on each of the sides. And then on these three tribes, the center tribe would be the leading tribe. And they would have pitched their tents, and then they each had banners that they would place facing towards the sanctuary. And these banners each had symbols on them. And what's amazing, if you do some research about that, the symbol for the tribe of Judah was a lion. The symbol for the tribe of Reuben was a calf or an ox. The symbol for the tribe of Ephraim was a man, and the symbol for the tribe of Dan was an eagle. So if you're looking down from heaven on the camp of Israel and you have the sanctuary in the center of the camp, you would have these banners facing towards the sanctuary. You have a lion, you have a calf or an ox, you have a man, and you have an eagle. And that same thing is seen in heaven, the four living creatures surrounding the throne of God. You understand that? So as you do this type of research and preparing for your sermon, you spend a lot of time going back to the Old Testament and reading the different Bible stories and seeing all the connections that are out there. And then, of course, you can go into even more detail about the, the elders. Who are the elders? This would be the 24 elders that you read about in Revelation 4, verse 4. And it also describes the two suggestions as to the identity of who the 24 elders are. One is that they are the resurrected ones at the time of Christ's resurrection who were taken to heaven. How many of you have heard about that? Remember when Jesus uh, rose, the graves opened up and people came out? The other suggestion is that they are created beings from other worlds that have not sinned. So those are the two suggestions as to who the 24 elders is. I like number two, representatives of unfallen worlds. You'll see why. If you look in Matthew 27, 51 to 53, it says, And then behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after the resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared unto many. So here we have a group of people who are resurrected um, at the time of Christ's resurrection, when he died and then rose. 
Now, do we have any other reference to this group of people elsewhere in the New Testament? Uh, do we have any description of this group of people being a part of the early Christian church or hanging out with the apostles? No, there's no reference to that whatsoever. It's as if this group of people, they just disappear. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, speaking of the ascension of Christ, Therefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So at the ascension of Jesus, it said he led some people, those who were held captive by Satan, by the grave, Jesus led them to heaven and he gave gifts to men. I mean the gift of eternal life, but also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came upon the apostles after Christ's ascension. So one suggestion is that the 24 elders represent those who were resurrected at this time and went with Jesus back to heaven at his ascension. The other group, or another suggestion as to who these people are, Job chapter 1, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them, and there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And you remember the story where God says, where did you come from? And Satan says, oh, from walking back and forth on the earth. So here are these representatives referred to as sons of God, and there they in the presence of God. Now, oh, one other thing about the elders, Isaiah 24 verse 23 says, Then the moon will be disgraced, and the sun will be ashamed, and the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and before his elders gloriously. So there's an Old Testament reference to the 24 elders. Now, uh, I like, as I said, the idea that the 24 elders represent are the representatives of the unfallen worlds. And here's the evidence for that. This comes from the book Desire of Ages. And Ellen White is describing Christ's ascension when he was going back into heaven. She says, As he ascended, he led the way, and the multitude of captives set free at his resurrection followed. There is the throne of God, around it the rainbow of promise. Now, by the way, if you read this description, this is the same description that you read in Revelation chapter 4 describes God's throne with a rainbow and then seven burning lamps symbolizing the Holy Spirit, the four living creatures, and then the 24 elders. That's the description you'll find in Revelation 4. So there is the throne of God around at the rainbow of promise. There are the cherubim and seraphim. Now who are they? What's surrounding God's throne immediately that we just spoke about? Four living creatures, the lion, the calf, the man, and the eagle, right? Four living creatures. So you can see she's talking about the throne, the rainbow, the same description in Revelation 4, and then the cherubim and seraphim, those are four living creatures. And then it says, the commanders of the angel host. Then she says, the sons of God, the representatives of the unfallen worlds, they're assembled. So she describes the throne of God, the rainbow, the four living creatures, and then the sons of God. Now in Revelation 4, it's the 24 elders that surround God's throne. Here she actually gives them a name, the sons of God. Then she goes on, the heavenly council before which Lucifer had accused God and his son, the representatives of this sinless realm of which Satan had thought to establish his dominion, all are there to welcome their redeemer. So the picture that's drawn here is God the Father's on the throne, the 24 elders are there, and Jesus is coming, and behind Jesus, following Jesus, behind him in his train, are those who were resurrected at his resurrection. So the 24 elders are already in the presence. Thank you. They're already in the presence of God. They're around the throne. Jesus is coming, and then those who were resurrected are following Jesus. Does that make sense? So I like the idea that 24 elders really are the representatives of these unfallen worlds versus those who were resurrected when Jesus came. And no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. This song is sung by those who have stood firm for Jesus in the final moments of earth's history and have been taken to heaven without seeing death. The song is an expression of their own experience, thus only the 144,000 can sing it. And these are the ones who are redeemed from the earth, that is to buy back or to purchase the 144,000 that are redeemed from the earth from amongst the living at the second coming of Jesus. And then I can go on and on and on with all of the other little details, but that'll give you kind of an idea of this type of, of sermon. Usually it's about five, six verses in length. If you do a thorough study for each of the verses, you've filled up your, your period of time that's been given to you to preach. So two types of, of sermons that uh, you could work with. Any questions that any of you might have on anything that we've covered so far?
Any thoughts at this point? Any questions? Okay, let me ask you a couple questions. So in our first type of format of your sermon, um, you come up with a theme. You have an idea. What's the next thing that you do once you've got an idea as to what you're going to be preaching on? Spend some time in prayer, all right? And what are you praying for? What are you, what are you looking for when you are praying? You're asking the question, what does this topic mean to me? And the way I do it is I, I have a notepad, and I'll get on my knees, and I'll start praying. I'll have an idea what it is that I want to preach about. If I don't have an idea of what I want to preach about, then I start reading and studying and, until I have something that I think the Lord's laying upon my heart. Then I ask the question, what does this mean to me? And I'll start jotting down all kinds of ideas that come into my mind. Means this, means this, means this, means this. So I'll, I'll get quite a list. Once I've gotten that list together, then I go through and I kind of find the most important. Uh, what is the most significant point that I want to emphasize on this theme? So let's say you do that. You've got your three points. You've got your, your sermon. You've got your three points. What do you do next? What's the next thing that you do? Each of those points. What do you need to do next? You need to find a Bible verse, at least one. Now you can find many, but you find a Bible verse that ampl amplifies that thought that you have, right? So you get your Bible verse. Then what's the next thing that you do? Then you find a Bible story to illustrate that point. Okay? And then what's the next thing? Then you come up with an illustration to illustrate that point. Now, once you've got a Bible story that you think is going to illustrate that David and Goliath or whatever it is, whatever story you're going to use to illustrate that point, what's the next thing that you do with that story? You read it, and then what do you do? Make it alive. Tell the story. Practice it. Uh, preach Preach to the mirror, whatever. Just go through it until you can, you can see it in your mind's eye, as if you're almost there, all right? You can almost feel it. Make it real to you. If it's real to you, it'll come across meaningfully and powerfully to those that you're preaching to. So, so make it real. Make it your own. Um, all right. Once you've got your three points laid out, you've got your story, and you start with your illustration, your introduction, you come up with your introduction, um, What's a good thing to do for your introduction when you're putting that together? You want to write it out, word for word. That might take a while, but I typically write out my introduction word for word so I really can get across what it is that I'm trying to say, to kind of grab people's attention and draw them in. And then your conclusion, same thing. I'll kind of write that out so I know exactly how I want to land the plane, you know, so I can make my point and pull everything to to an end. So those are some of the steps that you want to use to put together a topical type sermon. All right. The pastor comes to you one day or somebody comes to you and says, I want you to preach on John, I don't know, John chapter, uh, let's do John chapter 4. What's John 4? That's right, woman at the well. So you have 10 verses. I want you to preach on this. Uh, what do you do next? What's your next step? If you're going to do that type of a sermon, pretty similar to what we just went through here. What do you do? Write it out. If you're going to use PowerPoint, put it on your PowerPoint. And then break each verse into little pieces. Do some research on that verse. Sometimes it's helpful to even go ahead and look at the meaning of the words. Go back into the original Greek. Something else that's interesting to do is to search that theme throughout the Old Testament or throughout the New Testament. Remember we used the word lamb and we went back and researched where the word lamb was used in, in the Old Testament? You can get all kinds of ideas and insights by going through it that way. Um, don't take anything for granted. Uh, there, there is so much in the Scriptures. There, there is so many uh, nuggets of truth that you need to mine for them. Uh, don't just pass over something. Everything is significant. Everything is worth studying and looking at. This is far more time-consuming, this type of preaching, putting sermons together this way, but it's extremely rewarding for the one who's doing the preparation and also for those who are coming who not only want to just, you know, have a nice experience, but they really want to learn something that they can take home with them. So this is a format that you can use um, very effectively. And this is the type of preaching that, that we do a lot of. Okay. Um, 
I think that's good where I want to end at. There's, there's so much more we can say on this particular passage. But uh, any questions or comments so far? Do, do you understand that? Yes. You could. I mean, you could. Uh, I, I typically go with three because I preach for 40, 45 minutes. If you're going to go 25, 30 minutes, then, yeah, you need to cut it down. Then bring out maybe what that central point is that you want to emphasize. Um, I just typically go with three, and that seems to fill up the time that I have. You, you can also cut the story down. If you're telling a Bible story, you can, you can cut that story down or you can in, increase that story. What's also helpful about that type of preaching, the topical with the Bible illustrations, that's also a good form of preaching to use if you're preaching to a clock. If you're preaching to a clock and you have to be done by a certain, uh, for if it's been recorded or filmed or something like that, and there's a countdown that you need to be at, this type of preaching, um, you've got to pace yourself very carefully because you might run out of time. But with a story, you can always shorten it or you can stretch it out, just depending upon how much time you have. So. With the, with the three points, you can kind of stretch it out or, or condense it as you need to. I saw, yes? For this type of format, um, the, the resource that I do a lot of this in is I have a good Bible software, which the one I use is, is called Logos. And um, you can look up original words with that. Uh, it's also got a, the SDA Bible Concordance. Or, um, that's a good resource to go to the commentary, SDA Bible commentary, and then, of course, Spirit of Prophecy I use uh, very heavily, heavily. So with Ellen White's writings, I mean, there's just a wealth of information that you can go to. But it does take a lot of time. It takes hours and hours and hours of, of prep to, to put something together at this type of a format, but it's very rewarding. Any other questions that you might have on basically putting a sermon together or a, a talk that you might have to do? Okay, well, that's it for our first session. We're going to take a, uh, it looks like you got a 10-minute break, and then um, we'll move into the second session for this afternoon. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, thank you for giving us mouths so that we can communicate and share the gospel. We know there is power in preaching, Lord. It's your chosen means of proclaiming the three angels' messages, and we want to be as effective as we possibly can in communicating the good news. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in our own sphere, wherever we are, when we do get those opportunities to preach and teach and share, that you'd give us wisdom so we can prepare something that's going to convey the message as effectively as, as we possibly can for the honor and glory of your name. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.